You know, I've been asked multiple times um, why I or anyone else would walk some 15 to 25 miles a day um, over a period of weeks on a pilgrimage. And I think the answer is as varied as the number of people uh, who actually go on pilgrimages. Um, just last year in 2022, the estimated, there was an estimated 414,340 pilgrims that went on the Camino, the Camino de Santiago, either through Portugal and or Spain. And they were trying to answer that question for themselves. Now, a pilgrimage, by definition, is a journey, often to an unknown or foreign place, in search of something that is missing or lost in your life. And you try to find it as you move onward through that journey. And this is why people have been pilgrimaging for thousands of years. As one writer put it, to be human is to know the grief of some paradise lost. Each of us, however happily settled, suffers a foreboding sense of rupture, as if we have been cut off from some hidden source of happiness. Now, on each of my two pilgrimages, I went through this process of rupture. I was sensing something was missing or something was lost, and, and so I got away, and uh, so I didn't need to be around my regular life or regular distractions uh, to, in search, to go in search of maybe what was missing. Now, I think I fell into the lie that we all believe that when we aren't happy, when something is disruptive in our life and uh, we're not happy that something's wrong. I met lots of people who were um, also struggling with this sense of that something was wrong because they weren't happy. Some of them had lost their identities due to a divorce or a death or a job change or some sort of really big uh, change in their life. And some were experienced the sense of loss of God himself. Now, a pilgrimage is a practice, and it can be a very physical one. Obviously, if you're walking, that's a physical example of a pilgrimage. But you can actually go on pilgrimage um, in a mental way, in an emotional way, and in a spiritual way. And it's to remind us that happiness is not the goal in our lives. Because if that's your goal, you'll be constantly looking for it in the wrong places. So this morning, we are going to read about another pilgrimage from God's word in Luke's gospel. And so would you stand with me as I read Luke chapter two. Every year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for, them there, for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. 
All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Father, this morning we come into a passage that um, we've heard before or we know really well, searching along with Mary and Joseph for the reasons as to why Jesus did what he did. And so this morning, I pray that we open ourselves up to your leading, to what the Holy Spirit can say through his word as he speaks to us, transforms our hearts, and leads us into new places. So I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, today's passage is about a pilgrimage uh, to and from Jerusalem. And I've entitled my sermon, Onward, because I believe God is inviting each of us today to move onward, away from the fear of rupture or loss, away from the goal to just be happy. And I think he's moving us into a place where we can truly see Jesus and stop fearing that maybe we too will lose Jesus. Now, the practice of pilgrimage goes way, way back. God commanded Moses to lead the Israelites from the oppression of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. It was a sort of pilgrimage, walking from one place to another to discover something along the way. Now, God told them that he would lead them. He said, with a pillar of cloud and at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the fire, pillar of fire from its place from in front of the people. And so you can get this great sense of movement where a whole huge, gigantic crowd is moving onward through, uh, out of Egypt, through uh, the, the promised land, to, well, to the promised land, but through this wilderness time with this great big cloud in front of them and this great big pillar of fire at night. To tell you the truth, along the years, I've been very jealous of the Israelites because I too wish I had a cloud that led me by day and a pillar of fire that led me by night. But for the Israelites, this didn't last long. Once when Moses went to be with God on a mountain, suddenly God changed the way that he was interacting with them and they experienced this rupture, this fear that they had lost God themselves. Now, obviously, the only logical thing to do was to bring God back to them. So they melted all their gold and they fashioned their own version of God as a golden calf. They could now carry God, and I mean little g God, wherever they wanted to go. He was always right with them. They could see him, and they could follow him. Well, because he could only go where they were going to go. 
Unfortunately, this probably wasn't one of their best ideas. Eventually, with the building of the permanent temple in Jerusalem, the Jews repeated their need to have God stay put. In many ways, people thought that if they could contain God in one place, they could control him. And I think God allowed this for a time, a period in in our history, uh, but he never wanted them to think that he was going to move Um, wasn't going to keep moving them onwards towards them. And so then we see in 586 BC that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, the prophet Ezekiel actually sees a vision uh, at that time that God's presence leaves the temple. And so for the next 400 years, they, the Jews, desire so desperately for God to return, for his presence to return, that that's all they think about. And they do all kinds of crazy things to get God to return to the temple. And I think that's why in Jesus's day, the Pharisees felt so strongly about helping the Jews do all the right things, follow every single commandment and every single law, to keep all the religious activity going and to go above and beyond what God even said in his law, just to see if all their hard work would pay off and God would return. So you can imagine Mary and Joseph coming into Jerusalem with this great expectation that maybe God would appear that year that if they just kept God's covenants, that they just did all the right religious things, that they acted in a certain way and avoided certain things and avoided certain people, that one day God would appear again. After all, God had promised this. But I don't think they really trusted that. And so with this story with Mary and Joseph, it just seems so illustrative to me. Again, you you picture this. Here are Mary and Joseph, probably with other children. If If Jesus was 12, they probably had more children at that time. And you could see them going along with the crowd of people returning home. And it was this joyous time. They had partied all week long. And of course, they assumed that Jesus had followed them. Um, out of Jerusalem, and was probably running alongside with his cousins or other extended family members, right? After all, parents can get so easily distracted by their iPhones. I mean, I mean by the commotion and the activity and the stuff around them, right? But for them, it was a great surprise as they walked away from Jerusalem, probably some 20 miles for the entire day, to not find Jesus among them. So they had to turn around and go back the next day and then spend a whole nother day looking for Jesus in Jerusalem. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. Seems a little harsh, but maybe in their frankness and their frustration with Jesus, it was a fear reaction. Maybe it was from the exhaustion of walking three days and traveling and having to undo all what they just did. Maybe that's why they reacted this way, but from their viewpoint, 
Jesus was lost. He wasn't with them, so he was lost. Why had Jesus not just followed them? But as we read on, Jesus didn't think he was lost. In fact, he didn't know why they were even worried. After all, he was where he was supposed to be. He had done what the scriptures had said. God had returned to his temple. But they didn't understand what he meant. In Jesus' day, the temple had um, been this destination for religious activity, for uh, their activities, and they made this pilgrimage to celebrate their rituals, to do offerings, to do all the things And they were really good things that were supposed to point them to God. But these things had probably become their God, little g. The temple and the religious activities had become substitution for God himself. And while not being actually a golden calf, they had crafted an idol from what they were doing with their hands, the way that they were keeping the law, the way that they were doing religious activities, made these things an idol. And I think that's why they felt like they had lost God. And that's why they didn't see Jesus, that it was God showing up in the flesh. Now, thank goodness, we don't build golden calves and make idols. We don't make idols of how good we perform our religious activities or ministries or use all kinds of Christian slogans and bumper stickers and signs and everything as a substitute for God, right? Sorry to say, I don't think we're that much different than first century people. Idolatry is the worship of someone or something other than God as though it were God. But here's the dangerous thing about idolatry. It's actually created out of our own desire to see God. Can you imagine that we create idolatry because we are so desperate for God? But I think we get so afraid that we can't keep God from doing crazy stuff in our lives from changing up our hearts, from calling us to do different things, to go in different places, to repent, to actually love our enemies, that we wanna keep him in a box, contained. And so we label all our godlike activity as though it is God. I think we have created our own modern day golden calves. I mean, we know of things like money and sex and status and physical appearance and comfort and family and influence. Those are super obvious to you, to us, right? This morning, I, just before I put on my mic, I walked into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror because you probably should do that before you come up here. And I realized I had totally forgotten to put gel in my hair today, which makes it a little flat and a little bull. And I thought, oh, how stupid am I? Well, that was my focus, hmm. Not an idol at all, Cheryl. But I think sometimes our idols are a little bit more uh, insidious than that because they focus around the idol of our own identity. We will do anything 
to protect our identities. Every day, we decide who or what defines us. And this is because we get to control what we wear, what we do, what we carry around, who we associate with, who we're associated, what group or, or fan club or organization or, or all those things. We get to decide those things and they help define us. And then we hope that you'll all buy that this is who we are. And I think we do this because it keeps a buffer between reality and what we want to be as reality. There's this real fear that if people know us, they won't really like us. They'll judge us. They'll make fun of us. But I also think that we put this on God as well, that we have this fear that we will lose God. Because if God really knows who we are, he will reject us and leave us and not love us. So we surround ourselves with all this religious activity and as though it's supposed to impress God. And we get lulled into this stupor and assume because we are going with a crowd of other religious people or we are hanging out with lots and lots of believers that we, in fact, are following Jesus too. But I also think that sometimes we just assume that God will follow us no matter what we do. That he will go into our dark places and allow us bad behavior and actions and beliefs and he will just, just go along with whatever we decide to do, our opinions, as though the scriptures are just a suggestion. But I think as believers, we are so desperate for God, so desiring of our presence, for him to show up and do great things. But at the same time, we are so afraid that God is going to show up and do great things and will call us to stop following our idols. On February 8th of this year, a surprising thing happened at Asbury University in Kentucky. Now at the end of their regular scheduled chapel service, chapel services at a Christian college are required. You have to go to so many a year, uh, like swipe your card and they keep your attendance. Um, but while, you know, while students had come and experienced a chapel service, uh, while the worship band played out as they usually do, a few students stayed behind to keep singing. That's what they did, right? As one girl put it, she said, well, I'll stay. And she sang one song, and then she sang another. And she said, oh, after this one, I've got to go. I will leave after this third song. And as she was finishing the third song, she heard God say, just stay. And about two hours later, she realized she was still singing, praising God, and she suddenly looked around and the room had begun to fill up again. Now, when this went out on social media, at first people were skeptical. Was God really moving? Was this the work of the Holy Spirit or students who were seeking fame, influence, or social media cred. 
As one professor said, when I heard of what was happening, I immediately decided to go to the chapel and to see for myself. When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and for their neighbors and for the whole world, expressing repentance and contrition for sin. And they were interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. And this went on for 400 hours straight. It was over a period of 13 days when more and more students started to arrive from other campuses, people from around the world started to show up, and they've estimated that over 50,000 people descended on this campus to be part of this worship experience. Now this week, the president of the university announced the end of the ongoing service. I've been asked if Asbury is stopping this outpouring of God's spirit and the stirring of human hearts. I've responded by pointing out that we cannot stop something we did not start. This was never planned. The trajectory of renewal meetings is always outward and that is beginning to occur. We continue to hear inspiring stories of hungry hearts setting aside daily routines and seeking Christ at schools, at churches, and communities in the US and abroad. I think this is an illustration of exactly what was happening in Jesus's day. I think it's hilariously funny that God didn't decide to show up during their regularly scheduled chapel service. God waited and showed up when they didn't expect him. When they weren't doing all their religious activities, listening to the speaker or the preacher, singing their songs, going through the motions, it's not when God showed up. God showed up when Jesus began to be worshiped and repentance was being called out. See, Jesus wasn't lost or hidden to them. I think we all struggle when there's a new thing coming when we sense that God may be doing some big work in us, changing our direction, changing our hearts, moving us from business as usual into a new place. The Asbury president said, we cannot something, stop something that we did not start. We can't manipulate, manufacture or control God, no matter how much we want to. God is not boxable, right? But I do believe that in order for us to be in a right posture towards God's movement, to be able to recognize when God shows up, to be in our midst, we have to have the posture of humility and repentance too. So I want to give us some time today, uh, an opportunity, like we did last week, to experience the sermon and to spend some time looking onward for Jesus through repentance. Now, it's fitting because we are beginning the, the season of Lent, which for some is a burden and a, and a religious ritual. But Lent can be a practice. It can be a practice to us like a pilgrimage that we walk through time with God. It helps us refocus. It helps us stop using our idols to define us. 
to somehow recognize them and cast them off and instead experience the richness of God. Last week, Pastor Van had this image of Jesus behind a door knocking. And he said that it's like we have to listen really closely to see which door he's knocking behind and go and find him. And I think repentance is that very act of listening to where Jesus is knocking and going to find him. Repentance is, leads us into his presence. Repentance is an invitation to see God's mercy, his love, his justice, and his righteousness. And it's an invitation to see him wash away our brokenness, to wash away that sense of fear that we will lose him. But we will lose our shame and we will lose our sin. Repentance crushes our idols and removes them from our midst. Repentance is the remedy to idolatry. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that... I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, to become like him in his death so that somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press onward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So let's move onward today. Since onward is a movement word, I'm going to call you out of your uh, regularly scheduled program here, and I'm gonna ask you to, to move, to actually react to God sort of like you're making your own pilgrimage. Um, this may mean to you that you may stand up. There may be a point that as we go through this exercise that you may feel the need to stand up. It may mean that you need to kneel down at your seat on the floor. It may mean you feel the movement to come forward. It may mean you kneel here. It may mean you lay prostate on the floor. It's not an act to get God to do anything. It's just a reaction to the way God is leading you. So when you're, whatever you choose to do, listen for that sense of movement. Maybe God is going to ask you to move and do what he says. And online, you guys have a chance to pop into the chat and just say yes or yes, this is what I'm confessing or use a word to show that you're engaging too as your sense of movement. So as the worship team comes forward to play in the background, I will lead us through this word onward in order to repent. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. This is your time to seek God, to see Jesus in our midst. Jesus, we wanna make the journey back to you. It's been so easy to use religious activities, idols, and things that keep us from really experiencing you. 
but I know I'm desperate for you. I know there's lots of people in this room who are desperate for you and for you alone. And so Jesus, as I lead us through this time, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit moves into this room, moves into our hearts, captivates us, allows us to respond, to get a vision of you again, to deepen our relationship with you or to return to you. And so we repent from all ownership over you. How have we grasped for your rule and for your will and turn them into our own rule and will. We not only repent from O, our ownership, but N, from naming our activities godly to define you and define ourselves. How have we taken the really good things, the practices and the spiritual habits and made them about us instead of about you? We repent from W, wanting our own way and doing it so that it harms or hurts others. How have we used our power, our position, or our influence to control others? We repent from our apathy. How have we just stayed in the same place? We sense your movement. We sense your call for movement towards you. And we allow fear to dictate our movements. How we become apathetic 
And so we repent from that apathy and take that step forward. We repent from our, our religious activities. How are we mistaking the feeling I get when I sing a worship song or I hear a preacher and I replace that with the actual worship of you? We repent from our own disobedience. How have we taken your word and twisted it to fit our life, our decisions, our career, our goals, our sense of happiness, what I think is right over who you are? Sisters and brothers, Jesus is constantly calling us onward. He always can be found. You can always find him doing his work in his father's house, inviting us to join him wherever that is. So as we sing, as we worship, feel free to stay in the same posture and position. You can make movement then, or you can stay where you are but come to him, seek him out. Worship from a sense of repentance because he has promised, he has forgiven you. He is here to be found.